Welcome to a part of you, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we are entering the last month of the Bad Romance miniseries. We talk about unconventional love stories, toxic relationships, all that fun stuff, and we have a doozy of an episode uh, uh, for all of you. I'm excited to welcome back film and TV critic Caroline Sita. Hello. Hello, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to reveal that I exclusively refer to this film as Midsommar in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so do I. Um, I I don't. I feel like Midsummer sounds so no, like. Um, it sounds lame. It sounds so pedestrian. You know, it really does. Um, but yeah, we're talking about Ari Aster's Midsommar, which came out I guess almost four years ago now, starring uh, the great Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner and. Yeah, it's a really quite an incredible film. I think it's definitely um, a movie that I have grown to love a lot over the years. I've seen it a number of times, um, but I'd love to hear about kind of your experience with the movie if you um, when you first saw it and kind of what your impressions have been. Yeah, I think I first saw. I definitely saw it at home. I think I would have just seen it sometime in 2019. I must have rented it. I I should preface this by saying it's funny that I'm on this episode because I'm really not the biggest horror person. So I tend to try to watch horror in a safe environment for me. Hence hence choosing to watch Midsommar at home as opposed to in the theater. Although I will say the fact that most of this movie is in daylight is a great comfort to me. It makes it much less scary than... Other horror films are. So, yeah, I watched it in 2019. I enjoyed it then. And I actually really enjoyed it on a rewatch. I think that because I am a nervous horror consumer, sometimes I get more out of a horror movie on a rewatch, I think, because... Yeah, I don't always like the feeling of uh, tension and being scared and sort of knowing what's coming actually allows me to, I guess, appreciate the artistry of how these films are made in a way that sometimes on a first viewing, I I don't do as much. Yeah, I definitely have feel that way too. I mean, I like scary movies, but I also have that like... um, instant regret when I watch one being Mm -hmm. like, wait, why am I doing this to myself? You know, like... Well, I was watching, um, I didn't feel like it was like Barbarian last mm-hmm. year. I'm like so excited to watch it. And then I sit in the theater and I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? I don't want to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, the movie is an hour and a half. So it'll end at this time. So I have it until then. And then I'll, I'll, I'm home and then free. And I'll be okay. And I'll be okay. Um, as, even though I enjoy them, I, I definitely agree that I feel like I enjoy them much more on rewatch because I feel like it's easier, especially a movie like Midsommar, which has so many clues and easter eggs and mm-hmm. all this stuff it's i feel like it's easier to absorb all that once i'm not worried about like the being scared part <laughs> yeah 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 and it's so long too which i feel like is unusual for a horror movie to be yeah. two and a half hours long and it is maybe more sort of like dense with 
themes than maybe your classic like basic slasher movie is and and a lot of that you can kind of dig into once you know where things are headed yeah yeah definitely um i'm guessing you haven't watched this like famed director's cut that's i think like three hours long no but i was reading about it last night to try to get a sense of how it differed yeah i'm i feel like it's i think it's only available like on a24's like merch site or something like something crazy (laughs) like that so I haven't seen it either, um, but I'm curious about it as well. Uh, there's anything that like pops up in your uh, pops up for you? Let, let bring it up because I'd love to hear about it because I feel like it's I don't know. I'm I'm of two minds when it comes to director's cut. Like part of me is like I'm interested in it, but it's also like, but that wasn't the version you wanted I to know. Like, put out for everyone like on wide release. So I'm kind of like, okay, it's interesting as a little artifact, but like unless someone's like, this is my definitive version, then I'm kind of like, give or take. Yeah, I tend to be so weirdly, I think, connected to whatever version I saw in the theaters or first saw is the real version and anything else is a sort of add-on. It sounded like, from what I was reading, that the director's cut sort of did not drastically change. It was not one of those things where it's like, here's an alternate ending that's totally different. It sounded like thematically it was very similar, but it had a couple extended subplots and maybe dialed up the toxicity of the central relationship like even a little bit further than it is in the in the theatrical edition well let's kind of jump into that because i that's of course the central you know theme of this episode and of course of the film um i definitely uh i don't know i feel like i kind of take away something different from this relationship each time i watched the movie i think like when i was watching it for this i was kind of like danny's a little annoying (laughs) And like, I hate to say that because, like, you know, because I don't the life she's led. Jeez, it's a very loaded term, the word annoying. But I'm also like, I kind of can see the point of like, she's a little much, and um, I think it's because I relate to her a lot because like I'm the needy one in relationships, mm. and I'm like, oh, is this what I sound like? <laughs> you know. <laughs> You feel seen by... I feel seen, but not in a good way. And like, oh yeah. my God, I gotta like look at myself in the mirror, you know? It's. Um, I think the yeah. movie walks a really smart line between keeping everything, all of the relationship dynamics at least, like grounded in a believable sense of like, this is how relationships work, or this is how... Like there's a version of this movie that that turns up this kind of i don't know like toxic dude bro friend group to a point where they're just like irredeemable and i think the movie walks a smart line between being like yeah you're kind of seeing how they're like kind of jerky and insensitive in some ways but you also kind of get why it doesn't cross over into being too much there's no like pure villain and that's probably true of florence Pugh's danny as well that you can find her faults maybe a little bit annoying but also be sympathetic to obviously everything she's dealing with but just sympathetic to her in this like relationship she's into yeah yeah i mean i think like what's i think i'm curious to see like if this director's cut like dials up the toxicity because i i feel like it's a good amount in in the theatrical version because like he's just enough of like emotionally manipulative or dismissive or whatever but it's also not like he's not like I, I don't think he, like, goes over the edge into, like, full-on, like, being, like, you know, gaslighting, abusive. I mean, like, he kind of gets there, but, like, in a way that's, like, believable and that, like, yeah. 
I'm sure there are like millions of guys out there that do this and it's like <clears throat> not out of any like malice but just out of like the way that we are socialized to be self-centered mm-hmm. um and so I, I think that it's um to me feels like it's believable that like she feels that there's like a she feels like kind of like chasing after something that's like dangling in front of her and he's just like I, I don't it, like you're saying it's very grounded so it doesn't feel like over the top like he's not this like you know gaston like villain right. <laughs> you know um but yeah I, I think that's really um i don't know I, I find that to be really believable and i find the like the little ways in which he tries to be like a quote-unquote good boyfriend are just like annoying enough and irritating enough yeah. that I'm like you're just not quite getting it like a little <laughs> birthday muffin or whatever yeah oh grim i mean yeah it is i what struck me on this rewatch is that i think a lot of it of their dynamic is about like passivity yeah and this sort of it's like what's toxic about them is their conflict avoidance like they're both they both can't be honest with each other or say how they really feel and that is that is a very relatable flaw i think for a lot of people like they both it both it feels like they're both in this relationship because they are scared about what would happen if they break up and what if this was as good as it was gonna be and they've screwed themselves over by getting out of it and i think that is uh, like a very relatable problem for these like mid to late 20s characters to have and the circumstances of you know like you're hesitant you're debating whether or not to break up with someone and then something like truly deeply unimaginably tragic happens yeah you know that's obviously our sympathies are going first and foremost to danny for this like horrible thing that's happened to her family but that is also hard if you're the other person like it feels like it would be completely wrong to break up with them and leave them alone but that also is not really a healthy dynamic to just continue unsupportively dating them as well yeah like i I guess the reason why I had such an interesting reaction to Danny is that, like, I I put myself in his shoes of being, like, um, you know, like, you're just this guy that's, like, you know, probably has never experienced anything remotely like this before, you know? And not only do you have this, like, girlfriend who's dealing with, you know, her own family dynamics, but then, like, the worst possible thing happens. And it's, like, I feel like I also can imagine, like, being a little resentful of, like, you know, just when I thought I could get out. Now it's like one other thing that has to happen to this girl, you know? And it's like, I, it's, it's, it's an impossible situation to be put in. And then to be someone like him, like, like Christian, who is just like, already so like self-absorbed. It's like, I really, I, I, it's easy to see how they got into this dynamic of like, she needs him to be something he just doesn't know how to be. And mm-hmm. he needs her to like, I don't know, like, Again, like whip into shape, I guess. I think what's clever about how the movie is structured is how long it takes to reveal the full context of their relationship. Like, yeah, namely how long they've been dating. Because when she first she the movie opens, she's really worried about this these ominous messages her sister has sent, mm-hmm. and we see her call a guy. And from the initial way they talk, you're like, oh, okay, they maybe they've been dating for like a month or like casually seeing yeah. each other for like a month. And then he sort of asks a question about the sister and you're like, oh, okay, he already knows about all that. Maybe it's been a couple months, but the initial dynamic is not, does not feel like one of deep emotional intimacy. And then, I mean, we probably get like a third of the way in 
before she finally reveals they've been dating for four years. Yeah. And I think that's when my sympathies do really flip to be like, fuck you, dude. Like, this yeah. was not a... Right. We've been seeing each other for a few months. I uh, The crazy thing happened and I don't know how to process it. Or, oh, we're, it's a new relationship. I didn't remember when your birthday was. Like, you've been dating for four years and this is... <laughs> the dynamic i think waiting so long to reveal that is a good little it's rug pull really that's quite good. effective yeah yeah because it, it really also like puts you in this mood of like imagine four years of this or like let's yeah. say he was a good boyfriend for like six months you know like and then i'll like yeah i mean i'm sure i just can't imagine what that like i just can't imagine them like meeting you know and like going on dates long enough to like yeah. become a thing you know because she just seems so incapable of any kind of like emotional intelligence i'm like i feel like he's been like one foot out the door since like since the very beginning and just like doesn't know how to like end it without like being the bad guy yeah yeah um, they both have a desire well maybe that's what what to me makes her the um, ultimately the more sympathetic character is she is constantly thinking about his point of view. Yeah. You know, even when she is worried, she's worried if she's leaning on him too hard, but that is inherently thinking about him and you don't get the sense that he is doing that much work back to her. Like case in point, her first birthday after losing her entire family and he like, a doesn't even remember and b once he remembers it's not like he's planned something that he's brought along for the trip where yeah you know what i mean he knew or just to begin with just to back up the fact that he was without telling her planning to take a month and a half long trip on her birthday month for the first time after her family has all died in this horrible way like very recently you know what i mean like he is not at all thinking about her point of view and yeah. that i think ultimately makes him much less sympathetic yeah i mean what, what you said about this like past his passivity is, is really interesting because i was reading this interview with ari Aster, and i normally don't like to read interviews from directors like when i talk about this kind of stuff just because like they have their own you know interpretation or whatever and i do remember him this wasn't in the interview i read but i remember him saying that like he related more to danny than to like christian um, and that, like, he he was writing from that place. And I think a lot of people assume that, like, because he's, I don't know, people assume make a lot of assumptions about directors' personal sure, lives. Yeah. Um, but I'm, in this article I read, it was with Vox.com, and um, he basically was, like, Christian's, it's not that he's, like, inherently a bad person, but, like, his, like, fatal flaw, his, like, kind of Greek tragedy, like, flaw, tragic flaw, is that He's just inactive and mm -hmm. just is like very much just like cannot either commit to Danny in any meaningful way or leave her because he doesn't want to be the bad guy as as we talked about. And like, I feel like that is interesting in a way, like if you think about this movie as like a fable or a fairy tale or something along those lines of like how that <clears throat> that like one inherent flaw that he has really carries him through the entire film up mm -hmm. to his at the end and um i definitely like feel that there's something that's a little like like cosmic or like i don't know i don't know if cosmic is the right word but like there's something that's like this like kind of larger thing at a play here that he kind of gets swept up in and because he has this like tragic flaw in him that like feels his fate in a way and i think 
I think Danny, I think herself has her own flaw, which is I think she is also like um, really, as you're saying, like really always thinking of him and of other people and never putting herself first. So like the first mm-hmm. time she kind of does put herself first, it's like in this like weirdly ironic sense where it's actually like she's not actually seeing what she thinks she's seeing and essentially it punishes Christian for a crime that like he's not really committing because he's it's like a, you know, the whole like... Um, I mean, we'll we'll get to the ending, but it's like sort of this like weird irony play where like kind of they're both like the thing that they've been clashing over over and over again just like really plays out in this like grand spectacle, violent mm-hmm. way, which I think yeah, is well, really interesting. Well, if both of them are struggling with this like inaction or inability to choose yeah. what to do in life, it is like the ultimate ending is he is quite literally paralyzed by this whatever yeah. medicine they've given him drug they've given him yeah and forced to just be completely inactive and she kind of has to make a choice like a really definitive choice for the first time in yeah. the movie which again is complicated by this whole like druggy haze of the ending of the movie but it i see what you mean about it feeling like this i mean it, i feel like this is one of the movies that really popularized this like folk horror yeah. um you know kind of craze phase of horror movies and it it certainly is tying into those yeah sort of mythic yeah, uh greek yeah. tragedy fairy tale tropes i think yeah and i mean this movie quotes fairy tales i think like in so many interesting ways like um it starts with sort of this like pan or this like um like quilt i guess or some kind of like uh folkish drawing um or like weaving i guess uh, what tapestry that's the word i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and we that feels there. very much like the opening of like beauty and the beast or mm-hmm. any of the these like old school windows. yeah exactly like that and like it i don't think i noticed this the two times i saw this movie in theaters but i noticed it like uh when i saw it again just like how it tells the entire story of the movie and that's another like very intentional on ariaster's part again he like quotes fairy tales and um you know i think one of the famous like disney tropes is that there's always like a dead parent and i Mm -hmm. think this movie takes that to the like most horrific extreme um and what the hell is up with ari oster just like (laughs) really just a guy who's like let me think of the most demented things that could happen to my characters and make them experience it it's almost like yeah i mean i remember like when i saw hereditary which is a movie i really like um but, like, I found that movie so scary, not because of, like, the demon worship. I mean, like, that's whatever. But, like, just, like, I just couldn't imagine this, like, like oppressive grief this movie has. And, like, it's so, I mean, it's so scary because, like, I just could not, like, get out of that mindset. And, like, I think Hereditary is, like, darkly funny at times. Just, like, I think Midsommar is pretty funny, too. Like, I think they mm-hmm. both kind of function in this, like so horrific it borders on absurd and i think in a really yeah. interesting way um and i think i think midsommar more so just because i think has like a more like colorful cast of characters who can kind of like fumble around yeah um but it's like i i yeah it's like absolutely demented and i remember reading somewhere that he was like my interest is more in like the like relationship dynamics, but he has like he was like in order to like, get funding or to kind of get noticed, he had to do it through the lens of horror. Mm. And I know like Hereditary was one of the like first like elevated horror movies that came out because like 
or not one of the first ones, but like it kind of like popularized that totally. like, like, that phrase. Um, because and like I I think his next movie isn't a horror movie. I think it's like a straight up like comedy draw drama type thing with Joaquin Phoenix. So I think like he in some ways like has to like color his movies in this like really like attention grabbing horror mm-hmm. in order to tell these like very complicated relationship dynamics. Yeah. Which is interesting because I sometimes think the horror, the sort of classic horror beats are less interesting than yeah. sort of mid midsummer, midsummer as a sort of dark fairy tale breakup movie or hereditary as a really dark family almost like absurdist drama in a way i think that those end up being more interesting than like it's funny that in both of these movies he's like how should i end it i don't know weird cult ceremony and that kind of becomes (sighs) his go-to ending whereas i think that sometimes the beginnings are almost more interesting than the yeah. I don't know. Midsommar is a good ending, but but maybe just the length of the third act and how long it takes for things to unfold. I'm like, right. okay, I think I could have done without some of these extended sequences here. Scenes of like Florence Pugh just like walking around in a haze. I'm yeah. like, all right, yeah. let's yeah, let's chop chop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally derailed your um your setup of the fairy tales though and the the No, no, it's fine. Parents um, who are gone and I do want to I mean I do love this opening, like the opening act in America, um, because I, I find myself fascinated. Like, I don't know if you feel this way sometimes, but like whenever there's a movie that's like, okay, the chunk of it is going to take place in like one place. And, like the first like half hour is like the setup. I find that the setup to be really interesting and in how like um, sometimes you're just like, you know, weird little call forwards that happen or just like, mm things like just like the way that the themes are to like really like our like the foundation is laid or like the way um like i especially find interesting like the dialogue between uh danny and uh pele you know it's not, it's not something you really catch until you've seen the movie once and then you realize how like he's just kind of setting her up to be the may queen at the end of the film and like mm. um just like how you know like their dynamic is so much of like this inaction and like, you know, passive aggressiveness and like manipulation and like, and how like that just is like, you know, sets up the entire movie and like what it's going to be about. Plus there's a lot of like Easter eggs, like we said, like there's a lot of bear imagery in the movie and um, in the opening section, I think there's like a giant bear painting if I remember correctly. So I don't. I find the first act to be really interesting, um, and kind of like there's a really like my favorite scene. I think is um, at the pizza restaurant. Only or like I don't know if it's or like where they're having like the guys just hanging out together. Yeah. Only because there's like that giant photo of Sophia Loren and Jane Mansfield, <laughs> and like there's a shot when like um, Jack Rayner is like standing up, and like behind him are just like it's like cut off just where there's like just a lot of like cleavage <laughs> right behind him and like blown up. I don't know. It's a really, I thought it was a really funny image. Yeah. Um, Cause like the guys are all talking about how they just want to like have sex and like whatever. And like, he's probably planning on cheating on Danny, you know, at, on this trip. And it's just like having like that giant picture behind him is just, mm-hmm. uh, to me, it's just, like Arias are being a little 
a, a little sly there, a little funny. Yeah, he does like to heighten things to a like that. Yeah. I think is where that comedy comes from that you're talking about. Yeah, because I also I watched Hereditary for the first time for this podcast, Manish. Oh I really God. wasn't dedicated. I feel so, uh, <laughs> I'm so honored. I was that a you dedicated guest, that. <laughs> literally like my biggest fear for the past <laughs> four or five years, however long it's been. I did have to uh read part of the wikipedia plot summary yeah. before and like honestly kind of just like emotionally detached in order to get through yeah, it yeah but yeah it was interesting because you had you had mentioned to me that you kind of appreciated hereditary as a dark comedy which i see what you mean like it's not a dark comedy in the like conventional sense of a i don't know like a martin mcdonough dark yeah comedy. like this whole haha moment right it's like the there's like a level of blunt honesty like i think in a lot of the tony collette scenes like the humor comes from her just very openly admitting sort of like taboo thoughts about motherhood you know what i mean like her just openly saying like i didn't want to be your mother and like i don't regret it now but there's something about the directness and the honesty of it that is like darkly funny and i think there's some of that in 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 midsommar as well it's just the it is so keenly observed that you have to laugh because you recognize sort of just how insane human behavior is and these like dark thoughts that maybe we don't always um, say out loud or say as directly yeah. as in these films. But I think that there is there is something in his, in Astor's eye for observation that does become, it's like a laugh of recognition more than satire or or anything like that it's just like oh i can't believe he admitted that it's like yeah like i can't believe that like seeing this kind of relationship dynamic which feels so commonplace in this like heightened scenario and you're like because i mean i remember like reading reports from like or like tweets or whatever about this movie about like couples like fighting on the way out i mean who knows if it's (laughs) true right but like (laughs) you know just like because we don't really see this kind of like grounded, semi like realistic depiction of like you know passive aggressiveness in relationships, at least like not in such a like as you're saying blunt way, and just like you know imagining like guys like uncomfortably seeing themselves in Christian or in Danny or women mm-hmm. seeing you know, and it's like I mean just like how I'm like wow, am I this needy? I mean it's yeah. almost funny because it's like yeah okay ladies shut up you know right but it's also right. like i'm telling myself to shut up yeah um and it's the, so it's it's uncomfortable and makes you laugh i think yeah it is that laugh of of being uncomfortable i think that is actually totally what it is and the scene for me that does that is when it's the the sort of grad school guys all hanging out at one of their apartments and again it's like such a keenly observed uh just depiction of passivity but Christian gets a text and he's just like, Danny's here. And clearly he has not warned any of them in advance. And he's like, she's coming up. And then he's like, oh, and I invited her on the trip, but she's not going, but I invited her. <laughs> and they all have 10 seconds to process this news before yeah. she arrives when he easily could have told them at any point when they were hanging out before then. They are all on the one hand, deeply sympathetic to the fact that Danny's gone through this tragedy and you know want to be supportive, but also very shocked by this bomb that, Christian has dropped on them and just the way they each deal with it. Like Will Poulter's character is just literally like leaves the room and takes Christian with him. And William Jackson Harper just does not interact with Danny really once she's in the room. And that's when you first kind of see the Pele Danny dynamic start. And um, yeah, it's just so well-observed and 
it, it, like you could really imagine that kind of dynamic happening and it is that yeah. laugh of recognition of of how awkward and weird people can be and then you put that dynamic in this like very bizarre like cult you know yeah. scenario where like you have these like you know dumb american tourists <laughs> in seeing these like rituals that they don't understand with like being cut off and like really focused on their own like visceral pleasures like drugs and sex and you know also their own like educational like professionals like you know goals and like you know how like narrow focused they are on yeah, and, like their the ego own, of who's yeah their ego right the exactly and um and so you see this like yeah this sort of like keenly observed dynamic in this very like outlandish scenario and it heightens it to the fact that like they become feel like they become like grotesque mm-hmm. you know especially like as they start to act in ways and i'm like you're you might be in a foreign country but you're still like an adult yeah you know like peeing on the like ancestral tree and like the way they like interrupt stuff and like um even like the non-american couple i think they're british or something mm-hmm. like even yeah. they i'm like because like it, like, I feel like Ari Aster is able to, like, zero in on these very, like, specific behaviors in such a way that it amplifies them to, like, an absurd level of, like, why are you acting as if you've never, like, left your neighborhood before? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, like, everything is so foreign, you're, like, uh, you know, um, shirking the rules and just being really bad guests. And so, but it's such a, like, I don't, it, it's just like again this like passive aggressive like very um uh like self-absorbed behavior mm-hmm. yeah did you see speak no evil this i think it was like a danish horror movie that came out no but i year. read the spoiler okay <laughs> um because it was one of the things that, like every like a lot of podcasts i listen to were like it's the scariest movie ever and i'm like i don't think i'll ever i don't think i even know how to see this movie so i'm like i'm just gonna read about it and yeah. then I'll watch it if it interests me, but um, but yeah, go ahead and talk about well, it. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even need to spoil it, but I, it's just the the premise of that movie is very much about how much will you endure under the like the limitations of politeness. It's mm. this one couple with a kid who meet another couple with a kid on vacation and then invite them later to come stay with them and when the main couple sort of gets to the house, it's like things are slightly weird and they increasingly get weirder and it's that sensation of, you know, the frog and the who doesn't realize the pot of water started uh, starting to boil because yeah. it happened so subtly. And I think there's a lot of that in Midsummer, where it's sort of like, oh yeah, this is different. These are just cultural differences. And, and then at what point does that go to the level of this is just universally morally incorrect and something must be done about it. And you can feel the, all the tourists sort of in real time either acclimating or not to this like weird pot of water they've been they've been thrown into and it's i mean yeah i kind of appreciated that the the british tourists i think connie and simon maybe are their names i kind of appreciated that they are i almost wish they were in the movie more because they are active and decisive in a way that danny and christian are not like we know that they met fairly recently but they're already engaged so they're decisive on that level and when everybody's first watching the sort of like ritual suicide happen Mm -hmm. they're the ones that are like the americans are all shocked and aghast but sort of again like frozen or passive or they don't know what to do and simon's the one that's like this is 
wrong and he's kind of yelling out and trying to make it stop and there's a certain decisiveness to what he's doing which i mean in the end i guess the movie's kind of saying it doesn't really matter if you're passive or you're decisive you're gonna right. get killed by the cult anyway there's not like a a morality angle there but i thought that it was interesting to see how decisive they were in comparison to yeah and like i think they like um what i find interesting about them is that like they decide to leave yeah exactly you know? And I think, like, the morality of this, like, ritual suicide, I mean, it's kind of, like, if this is a part of their, I don't, I don't know, I, I guess I read it as, like, again, like, these, like, I don't know, I, I you know, I was thinking about this today when I, when I was watching, and I was, like, I don't know if, how I would react if that was, like, if that, if I had watched that without any kind of warning, I guess maybe I'd also be, like, shocked and be, like, we have to stop this, but also, like, you guys are guests into this culture like you know it's strange it's upsetting but i was like i don't think they're gonna stop just because you're saying to stop mm, yeah. you know and it's kind of like to me it's like um i i i read that i guess maybe in like a colonist kind of sense of like you know we there's no like a I don't this might sound a little problematic but like it's I, I, I'm not sure if there's like an objective morality of like mm-hmm. something is like definitely right or wrong and like for this group of like six people who have spent like maybe 24 or 48 hours or however long in this in this like uh cult to like immediately put this like western like um sensibility I don't know I guess I'm I was thinking of just like Part of me is like, who are they to really be say like this is right or wrong? Like they're visitors here, they don't even know what they're looking at and stuff. But I guess, but on the other hand, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's very upsetting, and I was also shocking. And yeah, you'd want to like stop it, I guess. If you, I don't know, it's it's complicated. I, I don't. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to articulate because I don't think I even have a definitive. Because I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah. I mean, it's so bizarre. I think it is a movie. I mean, not to be on my pretentious film <laughs> no, no, critic please. film we essayist uh course here <laughs> but like what struck me is that it's just a movie of dichotomies like mm-hmm. we've talked about the like passive versus active or whatever yeah. decisive and i think a lot of it is about like community or isolation right that's like the selling point that pele is selling danny on is you can lose your your biological family but if you live in this beautiful cult commune then you always have a family around um but then i think that there are there are these like complicated dichotomies of what is a cultural difference versus what is innately right or wrong. And is there such a thing of as innately right or wrong, yeah. as you said, and then also what is choice versus coercion. And I yeah. think that those intersect in interesting ways because I especially in a rewatch knowing that we were headed towards the ritual suicide scene. I read a lot more, ambiguity and maybe anxiety on the faces of the two people who are about to commit the suicide and it's Mm -hmm. like okay was this a choice they made or was this something they were coerced into and i think you can read that into the uh like christian sex scene that happens with the 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 local the local uh swedish woman it's like how much is is he choosing to do this how much was he coerced into this uh and i same with danny like being the may queen and having to make the choice about who dies like is this a choice she's freely making was she coerced into this and and i don't think the movie's 
trying to present clear-cut answers to any of these things, but it's certainly yeah. like swimming in these thematic waters and encouraging you to think about this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a really great point. I mean, definitely, like, there's so much, um, like, the actors who are playing those, like, el- like village elders, like, mm-hmm. their faces are so stoic that, like, it's like you could read it as we're saying both ways. And I think there's definitely a lot of, um, I feel like Ari Aster is really good at this like ambiguity. And um, I mean, I I do want to talk about the ending because I love the ending of this movie and I think it's really interesting. And I think what's even more interesting is like the reactions that have come from it of people like interpreting it differently. And I'd love to kind of hear your take on it um, because I feel like there's a lot of people who like think this movie is like too mean to Christian's character Mm. and is like, you know, um, condoning like sexual assault on him because of like Danny's choice and how she's like the queen and like, and that there's, I've I've also have read people who are like, you know, see this is like a yas queen kind of movie, Mm -hmm. you know, where she, and I'm like, I feel like the truth is somewhere in between there and that like, it's not interested in this, like, you know, either or. I, I think it's interested more in this, like, very, like, thorny way in which, like, these characters' dynamics have played out in such a way that, like, <clears throat> this ending kind of highlights that dynamic in a way that's really upsetting. I don't know. What's your kind of read on the on the ending? Yeah. I think I, think I am quick with horror movies or sort of weird sci-fi movies like this, I am more than happy to not treat them literally. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like, I think that I do get a certain like, yes, queen enjoyment, burn your toxic exes energy to this, but not in a literal way of like, and Christian deserved this. And this is, if you break down all the plot points, this is why it was holed up in a court of law. This is what should happen. It's more like vibes. Like I feel like at some point with Ari Aster's first two films, you just have to kind of vibe with them a little bit. And so I like the vibe of, you know, as you say, the sort of like um, Greek tragedy, morality tale, fairy tale, if we're taking it in this more abstract way, I think it's hitting on this note of, yeah, he was kind of, he was, Christian was not a great boyfriend. And ultimately she got to burn him and be a little happy about it. And it's not meant to be super literal. So I think I enjoy it on that level. And if anything, what I don't enjoy as much is the sort of uh, slasher or haunted house. Like I'm running around and finding all these dead bodies. And I, you know, and he Christian's like kind of on this dark maze through seeing all of his friends dead. That to me almost feels too literal. You know, that's like the classic horror movie I've, discovered these dead bodies moment but this sort of abstract hazy uh we're burning him and he's a bear and she's decked out in flowers i'm like yeah i can vibe with this on a very metaphorical abstract level yeah yeah i mean i i I agree i I think it's um i i think what's interesting to me about the ending is sort of like I think my take on this movie on like the fourth time I'm seeing it, I guess, it's <laughs> that um you know, as we were saying, like Danny for the first time in her life seems to be making a very definitive choice. And 
Christian for the first time in his life is I mean it's it's interesting because like in the in a sense he gets what he wants right he's been eyeing this redheaded woman for mm-hmm. the entire movie like the the guys go on this trip with the explicit purpose of having sex with a lot of Swedish beautiful women and um it's like the irony is that he gets what he wants in this way that is not in this like non-consensual ritual that isn't very sexy it's you know he's literally paralyzed mentally and physically and not only that but it's like it's like this like weird like amalgamation it's like this like very like strange like coincidence of events where it's like for once he's not acting out of selfishness and he's being victimized Mm. and that's when danny sees him and thus makes this choice and it's like this is this sort of like the like the sort of this like big picture grand irony of the film is that like you know for you know and even like even danny like she's this whole time she's looking for something to like cling on to some kind of like supportive you know environment and uh she gets that but the irony is that it's this cult that's ultimately going to kill her in about 40 right years. right and if not sooner that part not where sooner. Haley's brother like agrees to be burned but then is screaming as it's actually happening i think yeah. is, a, is another unsettling moment of yeah how much are these people aware of what they've signed up for when they agree to these things yeah right exactly and so um to me, this is like, I think part of the reason why I, I find it so absurdist is that like this movie kind of ends on this like big, like ironic joke mm-hmm. of like these people getting what they want in the yeah. most horrific, violent way possible, which is why I, you know, I mean, yeah, we all, it's like, there is this pleasure of seeing this guy who's so toxic and manipulative and narcissistic or whatever. I mean, I hate using those words. I, I feel like such a Twitter thread right now. <laughs> but like this guy mm-hmm. who is like, you know, but even though like his his you know crimes, so to speak, are just general human crimes. Like yeah, you know, like I feel like we've all both been the Christian and the Danny's in several points in our lives. Sure, you know, and so it's not like he's like a murderer or you know, it's like this idea of like who deserves what punishment. I think also comes up with this movie, and it's yeah, like yeah, I have yeah, we, I have that like very like guttural satisfaction of seeing someone who is so horrible have this like death but at the same time it's like but do i deserve that when i'm a little like you know self-absorbed at times or like you know what i mean and so i i don't know i i I, to me this movie feels like a very like it feels like a big joke yeah like not like a a joke in the sense of like like sort of like greek tragedy irony type joke where it's like yeah 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 it's like super heightened, right? right? Because if this is all kind of like a metaphor for a breakup, then there's a way to read this ending that's not talking about a literal burning someone to death. It's, right. you know, splitting up from each other, right. making the choice to finally separate. And maybe in the moment that feels like, you know, you're being burned alive or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think maybe horror in general, but, but Ari Aster's horror in particular, like does not benefit from the most literal yeah i mean i i'm i feel like a lot of my favorite movies are like not literal Mm -hmm. and to like look at them literally is i think to kind of miss some of the like artistry yeah you know um you're a friends fan right Uh uh-huh so you know the episode i think it's in season one when like 
uh, Rachel, Monica, and Phoebe like do that like ritual yeah. burning. They like burn their like exes like photos and underwear yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I, I just watched that and I was like, hey, this is kind of like Mitsumar because yeah. it's like <laughs> Mitsumar is like the literalization of like burning your ex's stuff as like a way Completely. to like exercise them, right? Completely. Or the like and the famous gif, the waiting to exhale scene where Angela right, Bassett exactly. burns the yeah, ex's yeah. car and is walking away from it. It is that, but it's like, what if? your ex was literally being burned (laughs) i mean i i get how also maybe that's like a frustrating cop-out for a movie that in the beginning is operating on this like what we're enjoying about the first half of this movie is how hyper realistic it is where it feels like every scene of this kind of not even just like toxic relationship just like bad relationship right like these two people shouldn't be dating they're not good for each other um I think what we're enjoying at the first half is the realistic nuances of that. And it is kind of then a hard shift to go into. And what you should enjoy about the ending is the most abstracted <laughs> metaphorical yeah, horror thing. I get why that might be a bridge too far for, I, for some yeah, people. For sure. But I feel like the movie to me sells that shift with that amazing shot of the car driving that becomes yeah. like upside down. And then also like, not just upside down, but then when they like reach the village, it like does this like weird like I like literally just watched it again, but like this like weird little like like twirly move into the clouds. Mm. So I mean, we can go back to the fairy tale part of it, like the whole Disney princess thing, because I mean that's definitely like part of the reason why I wanted to do on this podcast is because like um, one of my first articles that I read from you is the Enchanted one from way back when. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I know you wrote about Tangle too. So yeah, and there is that um, scene in Enchanted yeah. where when she comes up through the sewer, doesn't the ca- I think the camera flips upside down. Yeah, yeah, like that. So or it's too. very um, it's very Alice in Wonderland too, like falling down the rabbit hole. <laughs> or okay, I didn't click on the article, but I did see a Wikipedia cited. <laughs> article about there's a reading of this movie where Danny is Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz and the three guys are the the scarecrow, the oh, tin man, and yeah. the lion. I mean, which I, I think yeah, is a fun I definitely see that for sure. I mean I feel like there's I feel like every movie you can really like telegraph like graft the Wizard of Oz onto. Yeah, like, true. <laughs> I feel like I've seen that movie with like so many I feel like I've seen articles of like how this is related to the Wizard of Oz. I, mm-hmm. I, mean, I feel like it's always true because like the Wizard of Oz is like hugely influential of course. Um mm-hmm. and I think like the perfect hero's journey movie. Um but yeah no I totally like see that too and um you know the scene when when Dan when they first arrive and Danny has that like bad trip and goes through on her walk. That reminded me of like, the scene in like Snow White when she's like yeah in the, running in the through forest, the forest, and, like all the animals are like scaring her. And um, I felt like this movie had a lot of like Snow White to it because it's like this lone woman with like a bunch of guys who are like yeah. our children basically. <laughs> um and even like you know little mermaid because of the like you know in this like strange new world where she doesn't quite know the language Mm -hmm. or like how to operate and stuff so um i definitely did read this in that interview with vox ariaster like did mention that he sees this as a fairy tale and he was inspired by disney and um i think it's to like I, I just I love this take of this movie as a fairy tale because I feel like it accomplishes that like you know um, that's the shift from the literal to the abstract is that mm-hmm. it's, as you know because I think even like Disney movies like that first act it's like very normal like Belle is just hanging out in her village yeah. 
and it's not until she goes into this journey that she sees the enchanted castle and you know so yeah these wild things yeah and then the danny gets to be the queen at the end is certainly very fairy tale but it's in this very dark yeah dark way i even the carriage that they have her ride around in and the may queen is big cinderella yeah like disney cinderella design inspired it kind of seemed to me like pumpkin-y a little bit yeah Yeah. and it has to be said florence Pugh is so good in this movie like visually she's getting that disney princess aesthetic for sure but also just i don't know what a freaking great actor she is there's just so many moments where you're just so locked into danny's emotional journey i think and a lot of them are silent scenes or or scenes where she's saying the opposite of how she actually feels but you're always so so locked into what's actually happening in her head yeah i mean i think um you know i think one of my favorite parts of the movie is just her like in the may queen you know dance battle of how she's like um you know like just her face goes through so many different emotions and like how she's like you know like exuberant with joy but then also like exhausted and terrified confused and and, i mean that i think like the famous shot of her like as the mcqueen like i don't really see victory in that face i see a lot of dread and sort of like this like something maybe even if she's too like high or exhausted to even understand i think it's this like element of like subconsciously she's like what did i just get myself Mm -hmm. into and there's really no way out i mean honestly like you know like like we said that british couple tries to leave and they get murdered you know so like yeah i think even if she ever real even if she realizes that she's stuck there i think it's you know i don't think it's a victory for her the best yeah not the best life well one of those other like dichotomies i feel like is there is sort of denial Mm. versus processing things because a lot of danny's coping mechanism is just to sort of deny or shut down like anytime she gets kind of like upset or triggered it's a real like she doesn't and again i don't mean this is like a critique like but just i mean i don't mean this is a critique of her as a person right she's lived through something deeply traumatic she doesn't need to process it well but her coping mechanism is really just like when she when the trip starts to go bad it's just like no 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 this isn't happening this isn't happening this isn't happening and then there's this sort of the cult offers this sort of like communal processing where they all sort of share grief or or whatever but then that comes at the cost of just a lot of murders and suicides or whatever you know we want to describe them as so i it's like are you trading one unhealthy coping mechanism for something that surface level seems healthier but also means there's like a one in ten chance you're just going to get burned alive one year if they pick you for that yeah yeah that ceremony I mean, the other, like, famous part of the movie is that, like, as you were saying, that, like, communal, like, grief sharing. To me, I feel like that would, like, trigger my anxiety more. Like, all these people are, like, (laughs) mimicking my, like, wails instead of, like, comforting me. Yeah. Do you know what I think actually is a flaw of this movie? Yeah. Well, no, I don't, but tell me. Is the, it's real quick, but the little phone call she has with one of her friends uh, she ta- she talks to Christian and then she calls her friend because she's panicked. She's relying yeah, too much yeah. on Christian. That friend is too supportive, I think. Like if Danny has friends that are that supportive in her life, you kind of need her to be a little more isolated, I think, mm, to get yeah. the sense that she is relying so exclusively on Christian. Because that woman on the phone seems su- like such a good friend. 
you would feel like she would be there for Danny. Yeah, like after where, this tragedy had, had happened. She, unless she's also annoyed with Danny and she's like yeah, saying the right maybe. things and secretly like, God, get this girl off the phone. <laughs> maybe, no, but, but it seems I, more genuine. No, I, I agree. No, I, I agreed. And I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, like, yeah, like when you think about like, like Disney movies, like, you know, Beauty and the Beast, I'm like, yeah, Belle doesn't really have any friends. There's really no. no one there for her. Just that, just her horse. Just her horse. Um, and, uh, and like, even like, you know, it's that idea of like me against the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, yeah, and the, we don't really see this friend. And it's enough of a tease that I'm kind of like, wondering like what's Danny's life like like day to day without this like and you know I didn't I didn't really think of it as she brought it up but it's kind of like she must have a social life and like and you know so that like who's like someone's got to miss her and I feel like it could have been a little bit more powerful maybe more depressing but definitely more powerful if she literally had no one yeah Um, it feels like a little bit of a the script needing her to verbalize some of the themes and like the way to do that is to have her say them all to a friend but like i don't think she should actually have that realistically she would actually have that friend in her life um can we also talk about like do we actually think danny and pele could be a good couple (laughs) (laughs) you had jokingly said to me that that you know you see midsummer as a dark rom-com kind of as dark fairy tale romance and i was like yeah actually pele seems you know, I'm not saying it's going to be long-term good to live in this cult and potentially have to burn to death and or jump off a cliff, but I feel like they could have some good years together. He seems nicer and more supportive I mean, than anyone yeah. else in her, around her. Well, yeah, I mean, that one conversation, like, when I first saw the movie, I remember being like, okay, yeah, thank God there's at least one man on this movie who, like, actually is, like, trying to, like, relate with her. And, of course, now when I see it again, I feel that's more manipulative. But For sure. I definitely do agree. And I think that like, you know, to me, he represents like that, like stock rom-com figure of like that perfect guy. <laughs> you Draws know, her the like, picture for her birthday. Yeah. And... Right. Um, and uh, as that, you know, like in like romantic comedies, there was the, like, like the, like the Baxter type. Yeah. Know? Like, I feel like he's like that. And like, that's his function in this movie is like, you know, sort of the mirror image of Christian and, like, all these other guys. And he's the one that's, like, actually sensitive. And, like, you can imagine that, like, Danny's thinking, like, oh, like, it's because he has this, like, supportive, right, lovely, you know, culture around him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and he, I think he's the best-looking guy of the bunch. I'm sure, say. yeah, I could see that. It, it It's kind of, like, um, legally blonde, and he is... Luke Wilson, he's Emmett as the supportive, uh, you know, feminist yeah. grad student, and she's chasing right. after Warner, the horrible right, entitled, right. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. trust baby, and she's gotta <laughs> self-actualize. And I mean, this is where the comedy comes in too. Like, it's funny to be like, this is a self-actualization fairy tale rom com, and the way to do that is to join a horrible death cult that right, will right, to certainly the, kill you. That's the the irony of the movie. Yeah. I, I feel like because um, yeah, I mean, you brought a self actual actualization part of it, and that's always been one of my like favorite things that I've read about random comedies. Is like the best ones are the ones where it's like that's the main focus of the story, and then like mm-hmm. the romance is secondary. Um, and I feel like Danny thinks she might be in one, or like wants you know, or it's not that she thinks she's in one, but like that's sort of the like undercurrent of the film. It's like her 
like it's like the funhouse mirror version of that kind of story where it's mm-hmm. like she ditches the toxic ex and gets with you know finds herself yeah. but really it's like you know this absurdist version of that yeah yeah very dark and <laughs> full of i mean some murders pretty dark but i also like you were saying earlier it's also very light so yeah like it takes place during the day and i just wanted to like get your like if you have any like specific like shots or like camera Mm. like camera work because the movie was shot by powell um pagorzelski uh who worked on hereditary and i feel like these movies are like night and day literally but um they're very like kind of um I love the way that they they use sunlight in this movie and like these like wide shots. Um, and um, yeah, is there anything specific that jumps out to you? I mean, well, again, it can't be said enough. So much less scary to watch horror movies set in the daytime. They should all be set in the daytime <laughs> so that I feel more comfortable watching them. I just love, I mean, this is a, a costume and production design thing sure, as much yeah, as a yeah. cinematography thing, but just all of the ending of the, the, the sort of the May queen sequence from, from just her in the dress with the simple flower um, headpiece to it just, you know, keeps getting more and more flowers added to it till she's literally in an incredible, like, floral poncho almost at the end. I think all of that is really, really just, like, unique and great iconography. Like, you can... I always appreciate when a movie could just very immediately be a Halloween costume. That to me is a level of they've created something that feels really memorable. And I think this movie certainly qualifies for that. I also like that. I feel like a lot of horror movies, the go-to would be like, Ooh, if we want to invoke a sort of the ancient history of another culture, we would go voodoo or we'd go native American, or we would go, some sort of African tribal thing. Like these are the kind of uh, mostly very dated and like not thoughtful or interesting tropes that a horror movie would lean on. And I like that this one goes Swedish, like goes European and sort of pulling from that history and being like, yeah, guess what? A lot of ancient traditions and histories are really weird. Like this is not exclusive to any one culture. And I think that's quite a, a unique and kind of savvy touch to to make this uh, idyllic blonde white Swedish culture into this completely horrifying thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I appreciate that um, because I definitely agree that there's, there's always an element of like Euro or like Caucasian centrism when it comes to stuff like this, where it's like, this is the normal, this is the other. And I like mm-hmm. that the other was also this like very like blonde, blue eyed, white, <laughs> um and you know pagan kind of culture i I appreciated that um i feel that like you know this movie yeah like i mean the sunshine in this movie is so great um it feels almost like technicolor or like feels like the colors are just so heightened especially in that like may queen sequence where like Mm -hmm. these flowers just look like they're like peak blooming and it's just like so it's so beautiful, but like in a really like upsetting way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of my favorite like shots or like sequences in movies when they are they have that first trip and like it's like about like the trees breathing and like Granny like Danny's like looking at the grass and like how it's like almost like vibrating, 
and like it's just a really simple shot of like Florence Pugh just kind of like looking around it's just like I think just a, a really like cl- like clear way of how this movie like is the visual language is so baked into her perspective that like mm-hmm. it just feels like everything is centered through her lens um and I think it's just really fascinating um and uh I mean there's just like the architecture in this movie is really cool like that like one like sun like sculpture thing or not I think it's like an archway or something mm-hmm. um to me it's like also another sim- symbol of the sun and like fire burning and all that um yeah and just like I think Ari Aster is really good at like creating these like very like shocking images in like the center of the frame like when you see the like the shack like burning with Christian inside it it's like a really like stark image because it's like there's it's just like in the field and it's just like the the burning shack it's really yeah quiet, or a temple or whatever it also it struck me on this rewatch i don't know if i picked up on it on the first time but that pele talks about how both of his parents died and he says that they burned in a fire which presumably mm. was one of these you know it presented as if oh it was this horrible accident that happened yeah. but presumably they were some of the ones that were right chosen right. for this it's interesting that that has become tries to become his like bonding moment with um Danny. yeah yeah and yeah I and mean, i just feel like it's one of those things you just don't really catch yeah. um here's sort of this like weird conspiracy theory that i've read mm-hmm. on the midsummer subreddit which i have gone on to <laughs> i'm very embarrassed to say but um it's the same with the movie nope where i just like go on there and read like conspiracy mm-hmm. theories but um I did read somewhere that there's that like there's clues that the sister was somehow involved in this cult or like her death was like engineered somehow by this cult to bring Danny's sister. Yeah, Danny's sister. This all started way before they got to Sweden. Interesting. Um, I don't know if I like that theory or believe it, but I was just wondering if you, you know, I don't want to bring this on you, but like if you have any like (laughs) thoughts about stuff like that. Interesting. Um, I hadn't thought. No, it certainly had not occurred to me. Yeah. I guess the question is: Is it a reading that helps the film, or is sort of? To me, it hurts it because I'm yeah. like, I don't love. I feel like Hereditary kind of is, is in that realm of like everything seems connected, mm-hmm. and nothing is like it's not really like there's no like destiny or fate to it. But I feel like Midsommar is more about fate and more about like you know our own, you know, like our own flaws and foibles coming up and becoming literalized mm-hmm. and that's more interesting to me but you know these subreddits love to just like connect things sure we love a <laughs> we love a every pixar movie takes place in the same universe or or like tangled and frozen are in the same universe sure i might believe but <laughs> um that one is true my I, my uh internet connection to Midsommar is that one of my few tweets that have gone viral is connected to this movie gives me a soft spot for it I said that in the middle of watching this movie I tweeted that Florence Pugh is art house Hayden Panettiere and people loved it and I have to thank Midsommar it was something about the way she's dressed in this movie just the sort of casual I don't know they both have these little gymnast bodies and I was like oh yeah, yeah this is like what Hayden Panettiere gives us but in a sort of art house form yeah so yeah. i'm not busy on the subreddits but i am <laughs> tweeting uh, that i mean <laughs> thoughts I, about actresses that's a really great um that's a great 
It's a great quote. Uh, <laughs> it's I crucial see, like, too. Similar, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain there's a certain blonde archetype both, like, we like really in film. Mm-hmm, so tiny. Um, do you have a favorite Florence Pugh film? I mean, mm-hmm. my guess is Little Women, but I don't know if that's true. My favorite Florence Pugh film. I mean, I really like them all. I do like Little Women. I do like her in the MCU stuff. I'm just looking through her. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia. You know, I actually do really like what she does in Marvel as Black Widow's sister. Like, I think it's quite... I don't know if challenging is the right word, but like it's such a good use of her charisma to make this character pop that maybe would not pop without her in it. Yeah. And certainly the contrast between that and like the more grounded work she's doing in Midsummer. Yeah, I mean I I've only seen Black Widow because I as a rule don't really watch the shows <laughs> yeah. except for WandaVision and Miss Marvel. So um I've only seen Black Widow, but I do like her in the movie. And I think it's it's kind of like let this girl have some fun, you know? Like mm-hmm. she takes it seriously. Totally. She doesn't and, need to be suffering. Um I I do like I don't love Black Widow, but I do love the dynamic between her and Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. because I think they play to each other's strengths in a really cool way because I think Scarlett Johansson is, like, such a good, like, supporting player that, like, her letting Florence Pugh, like, kind of take the more, like, charismatic and, like, showboaty role. And I think Florence Pugh is also someone who, like is so charismatic that like she plays off Scarlett Johansson really well. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Has, I think it's a really cool dynamic. Um, and um, like, I think one of the strengths of the movie is that dynamic because it's like, it feels realistic to the characters. It doesn't feel like Scarlett Johansson's like, you know, like, um, I don't know. I, I feel like she's like, I don't know. She's a very, I think, gracious ensemble actor uh, mm-hmm. in a way that's really underrated. Yeah, that's a good um, Even call. in her own, like, solo Marvel movie that she's been wanting for, like, over a decade, I'm like, she's still, like, you know, is able, she's, like, I think, like, Florence Pugh and this, like, very, like, star-making, like, movie star performance, I think is really cool to, like, have that room to do that and to, like, kind of play up some of the, like, you know, tropes that Scarlett Johansson has had to deal with as being the only event- female Avenger for a yeah. long time. <laughs> It's also funny that between that and Little Women, and I mean, maybe Midsummer, if you want to categorize it in this way, although I don't know if I would exactly, but she's like cornered the market on like annoying little sister or yeah, something, right, you know what I mean? Right. Confident little sister. There's something yeah. about her, even though she's not, I'm just looking at, she's 27. She's not like that young. Like it's, I'm pretty sure Scarlett Johansson was younger than that when she started in Marvel. Like yeah. it is funny that we've slotted, I don't know, ages are so abstract I mean, and Scarlett Johansson just feels older because she does she like, reads much she's older been around forever you know like this is the problem that I have with like actresses that like start when they're like 15 I know and then I'm like oh it's been 20 years but you're only like 35 it's crazy sometimes I'll look up like I feel like Kirsten Dunst is not even 40 yet and I'm like yeah what? how could that or here nightly I'm like how could they be they started so young and yeah it just watching, feels impossible that I was watching some movie I what was it and I was like Oh, it was a Reese Witherspoon movie. This is like such a tangent, but the one that she just did with Ashton Kutcher, and I was yeah. like, she feels like she's so much older than him, but she's not like the same age. But I'm yeah. like, only because like 
she's been around like I guess I've been watching her for longer and like I know he started young too but I don't know it's just like he was also just in that high school mode for so much longer with 70s show so I think he just yeah kept that but I know what you mean they feel like they're different generations somehow yeah even though they're probably like about the same age yeah um this might be a little bit of a tangent that I'm kind of throwing at you but I feel like 2022 was like seen as like a rom-com renaissance now Mm. as you know my rom-com authority (laughs) do you feel that like that is true or like I don't know because we had so many we had like marry me we had lost city we had to paradise paradise Uh, i think it's your place or mine that's what it was called fire island like all this stuff and i'm like i don't know i I kind of feel like we have been in for me i think the rom-com the 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 2010s into 2020 rom-com renaissance started in 2018 which was like Crazy Rich Asians and Love, Simon. And that was when all the Netflix rom-coms really took off, like the set it up. So to me, it started then. But what happens is that every single year since then, people have been like, they don't make rom-coms anymore. This is the year of the rom-com return. Because I feel like 2019, they said that 2020, like we just keep, I'm like, no, we're in it. It's been continually happening. So I think I'm a little like, to me, 2022 is continuing the slow burn return that's been happening for right. a while now but that pe- the culture does not want to accept that we're in the return so it keeps asking for the return but i'm like guys we're here it's happening it's right in it's right yeah. in front of us yeah i mean i feel like because just like the way that the theatrical model has changed and like audience preferences have changed and like the streaming model has really upended things like i don't think we're ever going to be in the situation where like a rom-com makes like 500 million dollars but like mm. a lot of them were successful like ticket to paradise was successful yeah it was really successful but like no one talks about it because like they're not making like bonkers money but they're making like i think lost city made over 100 million dollars like well over mm-hmm. i think ticket to paradise was close too but um i also think those netflix rom-coms i mean obviously we don't get box office on them but i have to imagine those are some of the most watched oh yeah movies because like people just throw make, them on there's like seven kissing booths or whatever yeah exactly <laughs> i mean i remember it was the it was the um one of the ladies from riverdale lily reinhardt yeah she had a one that came out last year and she like did an instagram post that was like baby's first netflix rom-com like that's just like a category of film yeah, not right. rom-com but netflix rom-com right that you can be a part of and Lindsay lohan has one and you know who emma roberts has one it's like that's just sort of a a yeah. stop on the way i think that the the problem is that they can all, almost feel as much like a tv movie or you know what i mean an episode of a tv show as they do a movie they feel a little bit disposable often yeah that's so they don't register been, like, for people as a rom-com that's, that's always been my problem with the netflix ones is that like there are some of them are better than others some of them are really good but some of them are just like uh not as good but they all just feel of the same that like disposable quality because it's like they're not like they they trend for like a weekend a week two weeks at most mm-hmm. and then it's like the next one comes out or the sequel comes out you know so yeah, i agree with you 27 <laughs> god um i'm just like I guess I'm just like waiting for that like big screen rom-com to yeah. like really take everything by storm I think like I think the last one was like Silver Linings Playbook. No, yeah, 
the one I mean, that was I like feel really like crazy like, rich Asians really oh yeah yeah of course duh, of course there yeah in that 2018 was there. yeah I feel yeah. like that felt beyond just here's a cute movie to throw on that felt like yeah. this is a real blockbuster moment I also feel like yeah speaking of cute movie to throw on I feel like even like the most like well-meaning rom-com fans have that like viewpoint of it of just like let's just watch it for the kitchens or for the like costumes or like whatever and it's like no we can actually talk about them yeah do you know what what one I would recommend from last year for people that haven't seen it is is on Amazon I think it's called I Want You Back with Jenny Slate oh, yeah, and Charlie Day. I just enjoyed that one so much. It was kind of a little bit of an under the radar yeah movie, but like I felt that was very old school, charming, but also sort of modern, quirky sensibility. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, um, I've heard that that one is, doesn't feel as like sanded down as like some of the Netflix ones do. It's like that's yeah. like that was my problem with your place or mine. I'm like, this movie is really ignoring its central conflict, which would have been really interesting. And it's because like we don't have a Nora Ephron, or you know, because I feel like Nora Ephron, like she was so good at like these like prickly setups that really explored mm-hmm. themselves quite well in interesting ways, um, rather than being very like safe but anyway i appreciate the you're indulging my tangent but i was like of course i I just like (laughs) i mean this is probably i was gonna say i wonder who has listened to an hour-long podcast about midsummer hoping it would end with rom-com chat (laughs) but honestly your podcast (laughs) listeners are exactly the audience yeah we've done it 100 percent on the right place but i do like the idea of to get rom-com hot takes you have to listen to <laughs> a nuanced breakdown of an Ari Aster horror film yeah <laughs> um yeah I mean part of the reason why I wanted to do this like bad romance thing was just to like branch out a little bit and do something a little bit more different but I'm like I'm missing the like old school rom-coms though yeah I feel that Those way too actually bad. for for 2022 just I, I so I stopped I used to write a um column about romantic comedies for the AV club and I stopped yeah. that last year and I actually felt maybe similar to how you feel on the podcast where like, if you really immerse yourself in one genre, sometimes you need a little bit of a break. So yeah. maybe for 2022, I was like, okay, I'll step back from the rom-coms for a minute, but now I'm like, I'm ready to, to dive back into yeah. them. So, so maybe that will parallel your podcast journey as well. Uh, man. I, if you talk about rom-coms again on a regular basis, I will be so happy. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's make it happen but... there. Um, was somebody, what did they just say? Um, Nancy Myers is doing like a hundred I think she's doing like a hundred and fifty million dollar rom com for for somewhere for yeah, Netflix or for, for Netflix, Amazon or yeah. something for Netflix. I mean, like, great, amazing. Let's make it happen. Well, I think a lot of I feel like that budget is getting a little bit. Uh, like, I feel like people are talking about that budget in, in a way that's not quite accurate because. Mm-hmm. I feel like with Netflix, because they don't do back-end deals, like, stars are now requiring sure, really higher high. salaries. Um, and also, like, um, so I feel like that 130... I mean, her movies are, what, like, 80 or so, I guess? 60 to 80, usually? Um, I don't I don't quite remember. Because also, like, there's also inflation. And then her movies aren't cheap. And then, like, yeah. things cost so much more. And she got, like, really A-list talent. Like, Scarlett Johansson, Penelope Cruz, Owen Wilson. I'm like, God, Scarlett Johansson and Nancy Myers movie. I'm, like, hoping it's, like, what will it be? Cameron Diaz in The Holiday. You know, like, that kind of, like, prickly, 
roles is because I, I mm. I've been wanting Scarlett Johansson to do a good romantic comedy for so long. I'm a huge Scarlett Johansson fan. I don't yeah. know if you know that about me, but I love her. Um, and the last you want she, more than just um, what the hell? What is it called? Just that into you. Yeah. Her, oh know? my God, what a strange. <laughs> I mean, she's great, but like, what a strange storyline. Just it's such a funny thing because, like, I back in 2015, I wrote this like whole five part mini like blog series about Scarlett Johansson, and I talked about three movies each for five parts, and one of those was He's Just on Into You, and like the whole thesis of that blog was that like she's always plays like misfits or people who like don't fit into like conventional things or like she's not a conventional movie star. And I was like, yeah, she's in this, like, studio rom-com. She's playing this, like, weird mistress character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm going so to tempt bizarre. you away from, from your <laughs> wife, Bradley Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. it's I I kind of, I, mean, I have a weird affection for that movie. It's yeah. It's so weird. There's good parts. Of, it's one it's of those like, classic, we're going to give you three amazing storylines and five yeah. crappy storylines. And, but... like, the, the most, as someone who grew up in Maryland, now, I didn't grow up near Baltimore. But, like, it's the strangest depiction of Baltimore I've ever seen. <laughs> and, like, hairspray feels more. Sure. Um, but I cannot wait to talk about that movie on this podcast. I can't believe it hasn't come up yet. But, um, yeah. What so, a I strange mean, movie. What a strange movie. I'll have to have you back for that because yeah. I, I've i reread your article on that movie a few times. <laughs> like, oh, thank you. It's, um, no, I, I mean, I definitely miss your column because... Um, Every time I watch a romantic comedy, I'm like, I always look to see if you've written about it because sometimes there's just, <laughs> like, no one else talks about movies in that way, in like the way that you did because the serious like, analysis of yeah, like what was I think it was like a Runaway Bride, I think, and I'm like watching this movie and I'm like, I have to read about this movie, but like all the reviews are just like not giving what I mm-hmm. need, and of course your analysis was like, I was like, yes, thank you, someone else noticed this. <laughs> oh, like, thank you. Yeah, how it was strange that setup is it was funny doing that column because it would either be something like when harry met sally or love and basketball or i never wrote about a woody allen movie but something that feels like it has been written about endlessly and there you know if i was doing my research i could just find a thousand really smart in-depth articles and then i would get to something about runaway bride and it's like no one has ever thought for two minutes about this movie there have been no you know, in-depth analysis. And in that sense, I was like, okay, I'm filling a void here for people that really need a a really uh, deep breakdown of the strangeness of Runaway Bride. I mean, not just Runaway Bride, but like, um, uh, God, what was that movie with um, Dakota Johnson? Uh, How, How to be single. How to be single, like, you know, uh huddles the guy intended like i don't know you just failure to launch that was another one where i was like thank god someone is noticing this <laughs> literally one of the strangest <laughs> i mean maybe just objectively the strangest i think another movie that takes film i ever if i covered talk correctly wow they must have had a tax deal going at some point that everyone was like set our stories in yeah baltimore um, I mean, I love Maryland representation. Sure. I hardly ever get it. Yeah, it's, it's quite. Those thing. were fun. Ones that are set in little cities like that are fun because you would find a lot of like the Baltimore Centennial writing about that they were filming. <laughs> it's just not that into you. And I was like, great, a great primary source. If there was something <laughs> local, they really, they would really dig into it there. That's amazing. Um, well, I, yeah, I really, um, I really appreciate your allowing this tangent um and uh of course you know 
fans of the podcast know that your column was like, you know, the Bible for me for all those years. Um, and I'm oh, glad we're friends kind. and that, you know, I love your podcast with Ned roll calling. And I love when you come on this podcast. Um, before we finish up here, are there any kind of final thoughts you have about Midsommar, Ariaster, you know, any of the stuff that we've chatted about? You know, I'm excited to see what Ari Aster does next. It's like impressive that he has, it's easy to forget he's only made two films because he already feels like such a brand in a way. I guess this is kind of like Jordan Peele and obviously Nope was a third, a third installment. And so, so it'll be curious to see sort of what the, the long term of Ari Aster is like when he's so firmly established as something right now. And I'd love to see him kind of, like we said, branch out and try things that are a little further afield from horror and see what he does with more of just a straight drama or, or comedy, honestly, like he has those instincts in a weird, dark way. And it, yeah, it'll be curious to see what he does with them. Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested in seeing his new movie. Bo was afraid with like walking in Phoenix. Um, it looks to be very strange and exciting. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think like he, also, like he and like Robert Eggers and like yeah Jordan Peele is a great pull of just like these guys that just like brought up a like new kind of cinema language and that's totally unique mm-hmm. and explores all these themes through genre um and um I feel that like there are you know it's this really kind of exciting new phase of filmmaking um I'm a big fan of Midsommar I mean I think it's like becoming a favorite movie of mine from like that decade or from that year. Um, and I'm really glad that you were here to talk about it with me. Cause I, it was, yeah, I've been looking forward to doing this episode for a while. So thanks so much. Um, oh, yeah, it was fun to do. It's fun for me to, to dive into something like horror that for is the opposite of if I yeah. have an in-depth <laughs> knowledge of rom-coms, I'm like, here I am entering this world. I feel like I don't know anything about. So it's fun to get to, to dive into a genre yeah. like this. Yeah. Um, for sure. And um yeah as i mentioned you have this great podcast with uh our mutual i guess your friend that i became friends with <laughs> yeah our, <laughs> our, our, our nice internet collective yeah this is how it happens <laughs> we all start podcasts just to make friends with people i feel like yeah, so we succeeded like people that i'm like oh you seem cool please call my podcast and talk to me for an hour and a half or so um he was on my podcast talking about west side story for like two and a half hours it was great yeah, I listened um, to that episode, a really uh, fun one. Yeah, uh, but yeah, please tell listeners where they can find you, what you're working on, just anything you'd like to share. Yeah, well, we have, uh, like you said, a podcast called Role Calling. It's role spelled R-O-L-E, as in a role an actor would play. We, uh, Ned and I pick an actor that we love, and then we'll do a little five-film miniseries sort of exploring the arc of their career. Manish has been a guest twice, so you can go and uh, listen to it with Slumdog? No, Slumdog yeah, Millionaire. Slumdog Millionaire and and uh, the Almodovar. Hand me, hand me down. Yeah. yeah, kind of our Almodovar special for Antonio Banderas and Slumdog with Steph Patel. Um, but yeah, we really, a kind of fun thing about our format is that because we're following an actor, we get quite a diversity of genres. So we did Jamie Lee Curtis, for instance, and you get the Halloween movies, but you also get Freaky Friday and A Fish Called Wanda. Um, we did a Meg Ryan series, so a lot of rom-coms in that. And yeah, just like a real, I think, interesting mix of movies that we get to cover over there. It's very fun to do. So you can find um, you can find Roll Calling wherever you listen to podcasts, or we also have a Twitter and an Instagram at Roll Calling. 
I have a Twitter, which is at Caroline Cita. I also now have an Instagram, which is at Caroline Cita Writes, which I feel like I might change because I'm realizing I have so many things that I need to explain how they're spelled because they <laughs> don't sound. It is Caroline Cita Writes as in I am writing a book, not as in I am I need rights for myself. Uh, W-R-I-T-E-S. So yeah, you can find me on there if Twitter implodes. <laughs> That's the, the next best place to find me. But yeah, come listen to Roll Calling. We are, Our most recent series was on the Lord of the Rings films. We did a sort of special talking about how great all the acting is in those. So a very, a very uh, fun, passionate discussions. Yes, I um, I really enjoy your podcast a lot. Um, yeah, the your Meg Ryan's uh, miniseries was a lot of fun, um, and looking forward to uh, many more seasons to come um, for for the two of you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at vertigay three one four. Also, follow the podcast at it pod to be you. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Help you find the show. Um, we are finishing up the Bad Romance miniseries at the end of this month, uh, talking about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I think one of the like ultimate marriage movies. Uh, really excited. Got a great guest for that. So um, look out for that. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks, Caroline, for being here. Anytime. Happy Midsummer, everyone. Midsommar. <laughs>